Hello everyone, I'm back again. I told you I'd be doing more podcasts, and I know I've said that in the past, but we're really going to try to do it at least up until Wednesday, and then I don't know what's going to happen on Wednesday. If I'm going to do these out on the street, or if I'm going to be in a place to do them, but we'll see. Um, I think I know of some quiet places in New York City that I can do them, but we'll, we'll find out. So we're reading Histories <coughs> of Racial Capitalism by Destin Jenkins and Justin Leroy. And oh, let me take this out. It's a heat wave, and I had to turn my fan off to make this podcast. That's the kind of equipment I got because that's the kind of support I get. So support the podcast. Marinage and the Black Radical Tradition. For Robinson, the racial nature of capitalism, its non-objective character, helps explain why black political struggle necessarily exceeds the boundaries of class struggle as formulated by Marx's racial capitalism not only alienates human beings from their labor, but alienates them from each other through its grammar of immutable differences. While all workers at a factory, for example, are exploited by their employer, they experience the social relations of production, i.e. class, through the modality of race. Hence, the explicitly race-conscious politics of white, almost white, and non-white workers All this is not to say that Marx and Marxism is tangential to the black radical tradition, as Robinson noted. Perhaps no other political theory and its many sometimes contradictory historical iterations has so deeply informed black opposition to capitalism. Black radicals have been central to developing and deepening Marxist critique of capitalism. By centering the lived experiences of Africans and their descendants, they have remapped the sites of capitalism's inaugural factories, proletarians, and revolutionary negotiations, or negations, I'm sorry. The processes that Marx located in Europe were were relocated in European colonies in the Americas and Africa by black scholar revolutionaries who figured an Atlantic world long before the concept gained currency among the white North American academics. But the specificity of black history and its connections to the birth of capitalism in the Atlantic world called for an entire rethinking of Marxist categories and political programs. For Robinson, black liberation necessarily includes the struggle to preserve ontological totality, Something fundamentally different from, though not unrelated to, class struggle and proletarian revolution. The dimensions of this struggle are beyond the material because the alienation experienced by Africans and their descendants went beyond the physical and into the spiritual. Um, I probably would say, and I guess the psychological is what they're really talking about too. The process of commodification and the murderous character of daily life under slavery produced a kind of elemental spiritual alienation that remains unaccounted for in Marx's consideration of workers' plight under capitalism. Robinson's notion of ontological totality, 
flushes out an important thread in black philosophy on questions of being articulated by Franz Fanon and W.B. Du Bois. Their philosophical treatment of ontology understood being black as fractured by by processes of racial capitalism. The unification of this fractured being or the preservation of the ontological totality can be achieved only through political struggle informed by the specificity of black history. What Du Bois famously describes as black two-ness, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. It's not only about the tension between blackness and Americanness, this two-ness also represents a division between the commodified, dishonored black self in itself and what we might call the black self for itself. For Fanon, the fact of blackness and its historicity produces the ontological condition of being able to recognize oneself only through the eyes of others and what he calls crushing objecthood. This ontological rapture precedes and stains interactions with the non-black world. For both Fanon and Du Bois, even with the relatively closed worlds of black folks, only partially respite from the daily agony of living as fragmented beings is possible. The recovery of ontological wholeness was and is central to any black political project in the aftermath of the transatlantic slave trade even if it is not named as such. Fanon and Du Bois' masculinist theories theories of blackness, however, must be read alongside feminist theories of black ontology. The philosophical contributions of Claudia Jones, the Combahee River Collective, and Audre Lorde, for example, draw attention to the specific sociological position of black women as workers, mothers, lovers, and friends. Under racial capitalism, their work elucidated the triple bind or super exploitation of black women in a capitalist society. But they also fashioned radical horizons of possibility from this unique embodied location. Forging community and solidarity is necessarily material. The provision of shelter, food, and warmth. But these exist alongside forms of relief that are also immaterial. Audrey Lord, for example, foregrounded the somatic, sensual experiences of women, what she called the erotic, as key to black reparation. Here, pleasure en route to revolution became a negation of capitalism. For black feminists like Lord, the political could never come at the expense of the personal precisely because exploitation, wage theft, in secular terms, penetrated mind and body. They prioritized the preservation of individual and community ontology without broader revolutionary projects. The creation of space for love, self-affirmation, commiseration, and communion are facts of political preservation that exist in tandem with 
or submerged within the more overt acts of rebellion upon which the historiography of slavery has tended to focus. Systematic and discrete instances of ontological preservations, especially led by women, ought to be analyzed for what they can teach us about how black politics enhances but also diverges from Western radical humanist traditions. In the sixth chapter of Black Marxists, the historical archaeology of the black radical tradition, Robinson locates the origins of this tradition in the actual terms of black humanity. This consisted of African cultures, critical mixes and admixtures of language and thought, of cosmology and metaphysics, of habits, beliefs, and morality. One of the earliest expressions of this consciousness was the seemingly mundane act of running away from slave owners. Flight from slavery or marinage, Robinson believes, indexed an enslaved political philosophy at odds with racial capitalism. Good marinage was endemic to slave societies throughout the Americas from the 15th through the 19th century. In places as diverse as Mexico, Santo Domingo, Santo Domingo, or Santo Domingo, Brazil, Jamaica, and the United States. Robinson argues that Maroons fled bondage not only to escape slavery, but also for the purpose of constructing something new. These fledgling societies in the belly of slavery kindled the embers of what would become the black radical tradition. Maroon communities needed not only space, food, and shelter to fend off re-enslavement, but also military strategy and spiritual sustenance. The healing traditions of Africanized religions like Obeo and Santeria intersected with African political affiliations and cosmologies, providing something like freedom outside of 18th and 19th century Enlightenment categories, but more closely approximating preservation. The purpose of maroon communities was the preservation of oneself and community no matter how fleeting. Large maroon settlements represent one expression of enslaved refusal, brought in the category of maroon community beyond established settlements, Quayombos and Palenques, however, can reveal the ways, the subterfuge of hidden geographies of enslaved women w were and are critically to quote quotidian black politics. Petite marinage or truancy, for example, constituted essential breaks that enslaved people took to come up from air in a system in which they were drowning daily. In my own research on enslaved women and informal economy, I have found less permanent, more flexible forms of marinage enabled some enslaved women to carve out semi-autonomous space with slavery. Specifically, some women fled slavery to become market women who used the banality of their bondage to take refuge in plain sight. I call this fugitive freedom 
within slavery's eternal economic market, Marinage. Let me stop here to make sure I tell you, because this is a book of essays, and the author of this essay is Shauna J. Sweeney. So I know I put the book's editors, but Shauna J. Sweeney. Um, oh man, what did I leave off? Okay. Grand Marinage was endemic of slave societies throughout the Americas from the 15th through the 19th centuries. In places as diverse as Mexico. Oh no, we did that one. We did that one. Uh, as much as runaways advertisements lamented the ability of absconded people to pass as free. Oh, here we go. What was even more infuriating to owners was the ability of some fugitives to perform their enslavement in order to remain free. Reading the archive of runaways shines light on the forms of community and mutual aid that were often hidden in plain sight. In one 19th century runaway advertisement, a master seeking the return of his human chattels unwittingly reveals both the violence and characterized slavery and the novel arrangements that enslaved people could devise to escape. If even for a brief moment, the advertisement reads, Run away from the subscriber some time ago, a Negro man slave named John, by trade a sailor, and lately a Negro woman slave named Anne, a relation of his. The former is of short stature, full eyes, has a scar on his chest, from the break of a tumor and a cataract coming over one eye. He has been two or three times in different parts of the parish, but escape being taken being taken from his plausibility, and he is supposed to have a false ticket. The latter is a middle-aged person of a yellow complexion, slim made, long visage, and much pity pitted in the face with smallpox. She absconded from the vicinity of Lucivia, a Lacovia, where she was selling shads. In this ad, Isaac Sams, John and Anne's owner, revealed his inability to control their lives and livelihood. As a sailor, John may have had knowledge of the island's ports, and Anne was capable of selling fish to survive on the run. Their attitudes also facilitated their ability to live as fugitives, their plausibility. And false ticket and the false ticket John was suspected of having suggested their forethought about how to live freely. Maroons not only established societies but individuals, couples, and groups of kin, blood related or not, practiced the kind of collective preservation that, that characterizes the black radical tradition. I'm going to pause here because sometimes I think about our ancestors and I think about us today and we're so far away from what they were. Let's go back to the book. Understanding the complexity of the marinage within slavery lends a deeper appreciation to the nature of refusal in the context of capitalist hegemony. Maroon communities were never completely independent from the slave societies of which they formed a part. There was constant military pressure on Maroons to negotiate the terms of order within which they managed to secure a modicum of freedom. 
some communities policed enslaved people on behalf of the colonial authorities. Returning runaways and serving alongside colonial militias tasked with suppressing slave revolts. Look at that. Black cops. Um, market Maroons, too, relied upon an internal marketing system that ultimately sustained plantation slavery, historicizing maroon communities and marinage in all of their complexity reveals the preservation of ontology totality necessarily exists within racial capitalism as an imminent critique. Market marinage also suggests alternatives to tradition, traditional narratives of enslaved politics that emphasize masculine militarism. Although militarism and guerrilla warfare were critical to black politics under slavery. Conceptualizing marinage purely in military terms obscures other routes by which fugitives from slavery might have sought and achieved interstitial, interstitial freedom. Further, slave rebellion and maroon sovereignty were at times in opposition. Acts not typically associated with resistance to slavery such as the, tending, the tending of provision, grounds, and trading goods in the informal economy conjure different images of what black radical tradition might look like. Recognizing forms of resistance that do not exclusively conform to revolutionary tropes augments the concept of the black radical tradition which Robinson equates with the preservation of ontological totality. And we're going to stop there. And this was Gender and Racial Capitalism and the Black Heretical Tradition. We get the author's name of this essay by Shauna J. Sweeney. S-H-A-U-N-A-J. Sweeney, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y. And the book is Histories of Racial Capitalism by Destin Jenkins and Justin Leroy. I love this book. Um, it's pretty good. And I'm glad I went to the library to get it, to have to read. Because I'm providing information straight from primary sources. That's why I read these books. Someone laughed at me one time and said, yeah, it's like story time, but I feel you. And when I used to do videos to do this, the reason I did it is because to see a, a black man reading is a revolutionary act. Now, we know black men read, but we don't see them reading often, the act of it. And sometimes you'll see podcasters have the words on the screen in their reading, so you kind of see them reading. But there's something about, you know, listening to and looking at and seeing. And even when they're doing that, that's a really good thing. And I think people should do more of that. Um, and I, again, I've said this before, but I got this idea from a um, librarian. I was substituting South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, she told me, read story time to the children. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to read put some books away and stuff like that. But I read to them and, and I read to them in a way I, I held the book 
open to them. And so they could always be looking at the pictures. And I read upside down. I mean, it was a children's book, so it was easy to do. And so one black boy was just staring at me with his mouth open. And like, and the children liked it and they enjoyed it. They wanted me to come back. And, they would, you know, um, I don't know if anybody had ever read with the book open that way. And this was like decades ago like that. Um, but I think they enjoyed it. It gave them something to focus on instead of me reading and just showing them. Because you used to read it and show them and then read it and show them. But I had the thing dead, so it was almost like watching a movie. And when they walked out, I was the, the librarian could see that I was like, oh, the, the, the one boy that was staring. And she said, he's never seen a black man read. She said, most of these kids have never seen a black man read. And she said, that's why I wanted you to read story time. So I appreciate that, sister. Um, there's some strong black women in education. Well, there were strong black women in the education system. I don't know if they still are. I'm pretty sure they've probably been purged out or forced to retire at this point. Um, so... I mean, I can't even imagine what you're getting because you were getting miseducation even then. But there was ways to sneak in little things like what this woman did. And. Um, but now I don't even know if you can even do that. So you send your child to school, man, I don't know. We might have to think as black people, is that child abuse at this point? Um, but. That's another topic for another podcast. If you're out there, I know the world's on fire. Please try to be safe um, and just take care of yourself.